Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from December 1st to January 6th, 2021. So let's start with the United States Congress. On December 3rd, the United States House of Representatives passed via voice vote S-945, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. The legislation, originally introduced by Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, would prohibit the securities of a company from being listed on any of the U.S. securities exchanges. The company has failed to comply with the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's audit inspections for three years in a row. Prior to the bill's passage, Representative Brad Sherman of California entered into the congressional record a statement clarifying, among other things, that one, the intent of the legislation is to provide the Securities and Exchange Commission with the discretion necessary to determine how much of a company's total audit must be performed by a firm beyond the reach of the PCOB inspections before trading in the company's securities is prohibited by the commission. And two, Congress's expectation that the commission will not prohibit trading in the securities of companies under this act as long as not more than one-third of the company's total audit is performed by a firm beyond the reach of the PCOB inspections. The United States Senate had passed S-945 in May via unanimous consent. The Council of Institutional Investors had expressed general support for the legislation on multiple occasions, including in a July 8th letter to the Securities Exchange Commission. In that letter and other communications, CII indicated that the legislation was a sensible way to address a long-standing problem whereby some registrants and their external auditors were not in compliance with federal securities law provisions designed to improve the quality of financial reporting for the benefit of long-term investors and the capital markets. On December 3rd, House Committee on Financial Services Chair Maxine Waters of California sent a letter to a number of federal agencies including the Securities Exchange Commission, requesting that the agency cease and desist from finalizing any midnight rules or other administrative actions until President-elect Joseph R. Biden is sworn into office. The letter argues that such rulemaking and actions undermine our country's regulatory process and indeed our democracy by rushing through controversial policies that could have sweeping effects on families and our economy without transparency, rigor, and legitimacy. In a related letter on December 4th to President-elect Biden, Chair Waters urged the new administration to undo dozens of actions by the Trump administration that affected the financial sector. In addition to recommending that the Biden administration rescind the final rules on regulating proxy advisors and shareholder proposals approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission earlier in 2020, Chairwater said that President Biden should roll back SEC efforts to provide retail customers with more access to private equity, including the SEC's final rule expanding the definition of accredited investors. Chair Waters also urged President Biden to require public companies 
and regulated entities to disclose their board's diversity. She said that this could be accomplished if the SEC approves proposals by national exchanges to change their listing standards to require such disclosure and to set minimum board diversity levels. Chair Waters also encouraged President-elect Biden to use Section 342 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which created offices of minority and women inclusion at the Treasury Department and each of the independent financial regulators. She wrote that the new administration should insist on mandatory compliance uh, with provisions in that section of the Dodd-Frank Act, requiring annual reporting of diversity data by regulated entities. Finally, Chair Waters urged President-elect Biden to issue an executive order to prompt financial regulatory agencies to prioritize climate change as part of their oversight of the nation's financial institutions. Turning now to issues related to the Trump administration, on December 11th, the Council of Institutional Investors and several member funds delivered a letter to the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control in response to the president's November 12th executive order sanctioning Chinese companies with military ties. CII's letter asked the Treasury to publish specific identifying details, including tickers and QCIPs, so that CII members and other investors can comply with the order efficiently and effectively. Restrictions on buying the sanctioned securities take effect July 11th, 2021. Senior executives of California Public Employees Retirement System, California State Teachers Retirement System, and New York City Pension Funds, the Florida State Board of Administration, and the Ohio Public Employees Retirement System co-signed CII's letter. On December 28th, the Department of Treasury issued some frequently asked questions regarding the president's November 12th executive order, including clarification that the order applies to publicly traded securities of the subsidiaries of the Chinese military companies identified. On December 11th, the Employee Benefits Security Administration of the Department of Labor approved a watered-down final rule that restricts the types of proxy ballots that fiduciaries are permitted to cast on behalf of pension and 401k plans governed by the Employee Income Retirement Security Act. The rule amends the department's 1974 investment duties regulation and requires fiduciaries to cast proxy votes only on issues that have an economic impact on their pension or 401k plans. The rule was proposed as part of an April 2019 executive order from the Trump administration for a complete review of the Department of Labor's guidance on fiduciary responsibilities for proxy voting. The final rule was substantially changed from the proposal released by the Department of Labor in August to a more principle-based approach aimed at helping reduce the cost burden for fund managers. U.S. Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia in a statement said that the rule reflects modifications in response to rulemaking comments in order to establish appropriately tailored safeguards for employee benefit plans using a principle-based approach. Department of Labor reported that in response to the proposal, it received approximately 300 written comments from a variety of stakeholders and approximately 6,700 form letters. The U.S. Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment reported that it conducted a survey revealing that 96% of asset managers and investment advisors and 97% of investor organizations, multi-employer plans, and labor unions oppose the rule, 
The Council of Institutional Investors sent the Department of Labor a letter on September 24th opposing the proposed rule and asking that it be withdrawn. The most prominent change to the proposed rule was the removal of a cost-benefit calculation on share voting. The final rule lists six considerations a fiduciary must keep in mind when making decisions on exercising shareholder rights, including but not limited to proxy voting. Number one, act solely in accordance with the economic interests of the plan and its participants and beneficiaries. Number two, consider any costs involved. Number three, do not subordinate the interests of the participants and beneficiaries to any non-pecuniary objective. Number four, evaluate material facts that form the basis for any particular proxy vote. Number five, maintain records on proxy voting activities and other exercises of shareholder rights. And number six, exercise prudence and diligence in the selection and monitoring of proxy advisory firms. The final rule will be effective 30 days after publication of the Federal Register and applies to shareholder rights after that date. On December 18th, President Trump signed into law S-945, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, the bill I referenced earlier in this episode. Following the president's action, Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton issued a statement noting that prior to the act's enactment, the commission staff were finalizing recommendations for proposed rules regarding enhanced listing standards for U.S. securities exchanges and auditor qualifications for the commission's consideration. And due to the substantial overlap between the staff's proposal and the act, Chairman Clayton indicated that he was directing the commission staff to consider providing a single consolidated proposal for the commission's consideration on issues related to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's access to audit work papers, exchange listing standards, and trading prohibitions. Finally, Chairman Clayton asked the staff to consider additional issues related to the Act's implementation, including how the Act's disclosure requirements can be implemented expeditiously and how any actual or perceived uncertainty can be addressed in a manner consistent with congressional intent, as well as investor protection and the fair and orderly operation of our markets. Turning now to other recent activities at the Securities and Exchange Commission. On December 1st, at a meeting of the SEC's Asset Management Advisory Committee, an ESG subcommittee made recommendations on ESG disclosure by companies and investment managers, and panelists discussed ways that the SEC could help increase diversity at asset management firms. The ESG subcommittee made more robust recommendations for mandating corporate ESG disclosure than it did for ESG disclosure by asset managers. Michelle McCarthy Beck of TI Craft Financial Solutions, who chairs the ESG committee, explained that asset managers' ability to filter company stock based on firms' approaches to ESG issues is dependent upon better corporate disclosure. Ms. Beck also explained that, that her subcommittee interviewed practitioners, including asset managers, industry groups, and service providers, many of whom complained that companies are not consistently reporting their material ESG risk. The spec added that the panel plans to engage with companies and present a final set of corporate disclosure recommendations and best practice suggestions for ESG investment products at the committee's next meeting in the new year. The ESG subcommittee recommended that the SEC require the adoption of standards by which companies would be required to disclose material ESG risks. Specifically, the panel said those standards should contain four elements. One, the standard should be authoritative and binding, akin to generally accepted accounting principles. Two, 
the standards should be applicable to disclosure of material ESG risk and guide companies in determining whether an ESG risk is material or could become so in the future. Three, the standards should be material, industry-specific, and provide clear guidance of relevant metrics. And four, the standards should ensure that ESG disclosure comprehensively addresses all material ESG risks, meaningfully conveys a company's exposure to each material ESG risk, and allows uniform comparison of material ESG risks across industries and specific comparison within industries. The ESG subcommittee also recommended that the SEC utilize standard setters frameworks to require disclosure of material ESG risks. It specified that those frameworks should contain three elements. One, the framework should clearly articulate the principles by which a company determines the backward-looking, quantitative, and forward-looking, qualitative metrics and disclosures it should present on material ESG risks. And second, the standard should prioritize disclosure of material ESG risk applicable to most companies, such as climate risk, while also requiring disclosure of specific material ESG risks pertinent to a company's business and industry. And third, the standard should mandate disclosure of all material ESG risks by all companies with appropriate exceptions considered for companies that the SEC determines might suffer undue burdens in meeting the requirements such as smaller companies. To ensure that companies adopt the SEC's eventual disclosure requirements, the panel recommended that the commission require that material ESG risk be disclosed in a manner consistent with the presentation of other financial disclosures. This would include aligning data with financial metrics, integrating ESG disclosure into required SEC filings and reports, and making the presentation machine readable in a standard format and taxonomy. The ESG subcommittee noted that currently disclosures that are made appear in a variety of types of documents and do not always clearly align with other corporate metrics. Regarding disclosure about ESG investment products, the ESG subcommittee said the SEC should suggest best practices, including alignment with the language developed by the Investment Company Institute's ESG Working Group. As a suggested best practice, the panel said ESG investment products should describe their objectives and how they prioritize those objectives. In addition, the ESG subcommittee said the SEC should suggest asset managers describe each product's planned approach to share ownership activities in their statements of additional information and any notable recent ownership activities outside of proxy voting, which is reported in Form N-PX in shareholder reporting. Also, as part of the meeting, a panel of speakers discussed the lack of diversity inclusion at asset management firms. John Rogers, chairman, co-CEO, and CIO of Aerial Investments described the many roadblocks that minorities encounter when seeking entry into partnerships at asset management firms. Other panelists noted that emerging manager programs that institutional investors put in place to hire more minority-owned firms, while well-intentioned, often have low caps that prevent successful minority-owned asset managers from participating. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton acknowledged that the SEC is not doing a good job in this area. He recommended that the commission use a mix of its legal authority and its bully pulpit to drive improvement. More specifically, Chairman Clayton indicated that requiring institutional investors to disclose their selection criteria for hiring asset managers is within the SEC's ambit. On December 3rd, 
The SEC's Investor Advisory Committee met to discuss COVID-19-related corporate disclosure and implications for the next proxy season. Leading off a panel on corporate disclosure, Brian Hall, CFO of Lippert Components, a producer of parts for RVs and boats, described the company's challenges in meeting increased demand during the pandemic. He also highlighted supply chain issues stemming from Chinese imports, human capital issues related to protocols for dealing with the virus, and inefficiencies arising from having to stop and start production during COVID-19. Sandra Peters of the CFA Institute discussed the need for better disclosure of the use of non-GAAP measures in financial statements and the value of quarterly reporting during such a volatile time. University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business professor Dan Taylor shared takeaways from his research paper on how companies were disclosing COVID-19-related items. He and his co-authors found that early disclosure centered around supply chain issues. Later, companies began including caveats to their forward-looking statements, and as the pandemic went on, companies provided more disclosure of cash and liquidity effects of the pandemic. In terms of the kind of disclosure regime the SEC should pursue, Professor Taylor said he supported a principle-based approach, but only if the SEC provides sufficient guidance and has robust enforcement in place to prevent a race to the bottom. The second panel at the committee meeting discussed various topics related to the challenges of the most recent proxy season and what to expect in the next proxy season. Matt DiGiuseppe from State Street Global Advisors focused on executive compensation, emphasizing the need for companies to disclose the relationship between their compensation plans and company strategy, any adjustments made because of the pandemic, and an explanation of how the changes align with the company's workforce more broadly. Professor Colleen Hannesberg of Stanford Law School discussed some of the challenges of internal controls and auditing in a remote environment. And finally, Darla Stuckey of Society for Corporate Governance concentrated on virtual shareholder meetings and the improvements that are being made for next proxy season. As Stuckey mentioned efforts of various working groups, including an end-to-end working group, which has focused on resolving challenges to access the virtual meetings, and another group focused on recommendations for virtual shareholder meetings. Staff and members of the Council of Institutional Investors participate in both groups. The committee also welcomed new members to the panel at this meeting, including CI Board Member Cambria Allen Ratzliff of the UAW Retiree Medical Benefits Trust, Brian Helmer of the State of Wisconsin Board of Investment, Jamil Abstin of Ernst & Young, and Sandra Peters of the CFA Institute. In addition, Jennifer Marietta Westberg from Cornerstone Research was elected and took over as chair during the meeting. On December 3rd, Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the SEC raising concerns about the SEC's plans to approve changes to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's definition of auditor independence to align it with amendments that the commission adopted to its definition of auditor independence on October 16th. The amendments relaxed the rules that auditors use to determine if they have a conflict of interest with a corporate client and address circumstances when affiliates of an audit client and entities under common control are involved. More specifically, the amendments include a narrowing of the definition of audit client to exclude certain affiliated entities with a private equity structure or investment company complex. It's done in part by using a materiality qualifier and the concept of dual materiality. CII's 
letter points to our membership approved policies that state a company's external auditor should not perform any non-audit services for the company except those such as the test services that are required by statute or regulation to be performed by a company's external auditor. Our letter raises concerns about materiality qualifier that's used by an auditor determine if a relationship could present a conflict of interest. Our letter cautions that the termination of independence using a materiality qualifier may exclude from consideration sister entities whose relationships with or services from an auditor would impair the auditor's objectivity and impartiality to the audit client. Regarding the misuse of this provision, CI suggests the PCOB develop an issue, a rule or standard that would, at a minimum, specify the documentation that auditors should prepare and maintain when additional services are provided to an affiliate of an audit client. A letter explains that this would provide the PCOB through its inspection process with some visibility into how auditors assess the new materiality qualifier and the concept of dual materiality. Our letter concludes by stating that in the absence of the development issuance of such documentation rule or standard, CII must respectfully oppose the PCOB rules. On December 22nd, the SEC issued an order approving the New York Stock Exchange's proposal to let companies raise capital through primary direct listings without going through a traditional initial public offering. The order approved by a majority of the commission confirmed an SEC staff decision in August approving the New York Stock Exchange plan. The order was opposed by commissioners Allison Heron-Lee and Carolyn A. Crenshaw. Council of Institutional Investors have petitioned the SEC on September 8th for full commission review and reversal of staff decision out of concern that primary direct listings could undercut important investor protections. In a joint statement of, of dissent, SEC commissioners Lee and Crenshaw highlighted the issues raised by CII in our petition, stating that, unfortunately, investors and primary direct listings under New York Stock Exchange's approach will face at least two significant and interrelated problems. First, the lack of firm commitment underwriter that is incentivized to impose greater discipline around the due diligence and disclosure process. And second, the potential inability of shareholders to recover losses for inaccurate disclosures due to so-called traceability problems. Two commissioners also said that the SEC had chipped away at the public securities market in recent years through repeated exemptions from the Securities Act. The SEC order, however, ultimately rejected the arguments of CII and Commissioners Lee and Crenshaw that the SEC rule would curtail investor protections under Section 11, found that financial advisors to direct listing could be considered underwriters subject to Section 11 liability in some circumstances. It also said that a traditional underwriting was not necessary to assure adequate investor protection. On December 1st, the NASDAQ Stock Market LLC filed a proposal with the Securities and Exchange Commission to amend its listing standards in a move that could spur boardroom changes at hundreds of U.S. companies. NASDAQ wants companies that list on its stock exchange to disclose the diversity of their boards they have at least one director who self-identifies as female, one director who self-identifies as an underrepresented minority. If approved by the SEC, rules would require companies listed on NASDAQ to disclose consistent diversity statistics about their boards of directors. The proposal would also require NASDAQ-listed companies to either satisfy the new diversity requirements or explain why they did not do so. NASDAQ-listed companies would require to disclose the diversity of the directors 
through the exchange's proposed disclosure framework within one year of the SEC's approval of the rule. Companies that do not meet the minimum board composition requirement will face varying deadlines to catch up depending on their listing tier. Few, if any, companies are expected to be forced to delist as a result of the proposal. The proposal, NASDAQ said that it had reviewed dozens of empirical studies and found that an extensive body of academic research demonstrates that diverse boards are positively associated with approved corporate governance and financial performance. The proposal highlighted findings of several of the studies and also cited heightened investor expectations for diversity in boardrooms. In a statement, Adina Friedman, NASDAQ's president and CEO, stated that NASDAQ's purpose is to champion inclusive growth and prosperity to power stronger economies. On December 30th, the Council of Institutional Investors filed a comment letter applauding the NASDAQ proposal. A CI supported both of the NASDAQ's two proposed requirements for listed companies. One, disclosure of statistical information on the diversity board members, and two, a minimum of two diverse directors or an explanation of why the company did not have at least two such directors on its board. CI's letter explained, our policy on board diversity reflects the view that corporate governance best practices include the expectation that corporate boards will reflect the diversity of their communities, customers, and employees, and that diverse boards can have a significant positive effect on financial performance. CI's letter also stated that we believe diverse boards can be achieved without quotas, which may result in check-the-box diversity. Finally, CI's letter stated that we support the proposal's comply or explain model that provides a transparent framework for listed companies to present their board composition with the flexibility to explain why the NASDAQ proposed rules cannot be met. December 3rd, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to DoorDash strongly encouraging the company to supplement the event-based sunset provisions described in its preliminary prospectus with a clear time-based sunset provision, ensuring equal voting rights for all three classes of common stock by no later than the seventh anniversary of their initial public offering. On December 9th, correspondence with the firm Holdings and Wish, CII expressed appreciation for those firms' decisions to adopt sunset provisions, ensuring equal voting rights across all classes of common stock no later than seven years after their IPOs. And on December 11th, CII sent a letter to Roblox asking the company to trim its 15-year sunset provision to seven years for its dual-class stock structure. On December 10th, a working group of investor and public company representatives issued a report recommending practices that it believes should be the baseline for virtual shareholder meetings. The Council of Institutional Investors and representatives of several CI member organizations contributed to the report, which details practices that are standard currently and those that are evolving. The report is timely as many companies expect to hold their 2021 shareholder meetings online because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. This past proxy season, partly due to the last minute rush by companies to secure virtual platforms as a health crisis emerged, shareholders were often unable to participate in a meaningful way at many U.S. annual meetings. For example, in some cases, shareholders could not ask questions on a live basis or found that questions that they had submitted were not shared with other investors or were not answered. CII Executive Director Amy Boris, who co-chaired the working group that produced the report, said that virtual meetings cannot fully replicate traditional in-person meetings, and the report can help ensure 
that virtual meetings enable shareholders to participate more actively next year. Douglas Chia facilitated the working group in his role as a fellow at the Rutgers Center for Corporate Law and Governance. The steering committee of virtual shareholder meeting service providers and governance experts contributed to the report, which updates a 2018 guide to virtual shareholder meeting practices. The latest report found that 2,367 U.S. companies opted for virtual annual meetings in the first half of 2020 compared to 318 in all of 2019. The report also includes key statistics on aspects of this year's virtual shareholder meetings, such as meeting length, average number of questions asked, and how many were hybrid meetings, and on federal and state rules governing virtual meetings. The report does not delve into the technical problems that prevented some beneficial owners from entering virtual meetings this past proxy season. A separate working group of industry representatives, also co-chaired by CII and the Society for Corporate Governance, is developing technical protocols to make entering a virtual meeting speedy and glitch-free for the next proxy season, regardless of the virtual platform a company uses to host the meeting. On December 17th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation supporting the foundation's efforts to propose a new standard-setting board known as the Sustainability Standards Board. The purpose of the Sustainability Standards Board is to publish global sustainability reporting standards. CI's letter stated that we believe that many investors are increasingly seeking decision-useful, comparable, and reliable information about sustainability performance in corporate disclosures in order to better understand how non-financial metrics can impact business and profitability. And we agree that a single global set of high-quality sustainability standards could be responsive to meeting investor needs for that information. CI's letter also states that we believe that the IFRS Foundation should play a role in the ongoing efforts to develop global sustainability standards. Our letter states that the foundation's existing global standard-setting expertise and relationships with international governments, regulators, and standard setters would be valuable for promoting global adoption and potential enforcement of sustainability standards. By overseeing the International Accounting Standards Board, the foundation is in position to promote interconnection between financial accounting and sustainability reporting. Still, the CI urged the foundation first to improve its own governance in at least three ways. One, by creating a mechanism to increase its funding from sources other than voluntary contributions of those subject to its standards to provide for a stable, secure, and independent source of income. And two, the IFRS Foundation should ensure that at least half of its investor trustees possess significant knowledge of or have experience with financial investment analysis incorporating sustainability issues. And three, the IFRS Foundation should establish a thorough public due process that results in standards that satisfy in a timely manner investors' information needs. CI also emphasized that the new Sustainability Standards Board should have the following three attributes. First, a full-time board and staff who are independent from prior employers and similar conflicts and possess significant knowledge of or experience with financial investment analysis incorporating sustainability issues. Second, the new Sustainability Standards Board should have balanced representation from qualified investors 
who possess significant experience with financial and investment analysis incorporating sustainability issues. And third, the new Sustainability Standards Board should have an investor advisory council comprised of chief investment officers or the equivalent from asset owners and asset managers who possess significant experience with financial investment analysis incorporating sustainability issues. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at cii.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening and have a happy new year. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.